Hello, everyone, and good evening. Welcome to the 299th episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Felicia Henry, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Delaware in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware. I'm coming to you live from there today. And so today I'll be closing out my guest hosting Maybe, we'll see. But for the past two Mondays, I've been honored to spend this time with you all. And one year ago, actually, Scott invited me to be a guest on the podcast to discuss disaster research, race, emergency management, and vulnerable communities. And so on that episode, I talked about the importance of redefining concepts like vulnerability, expanding how we understood the social construction of disasters. And as a guest host, I've been continuing that conversation, that discussion by inviting guests that talk about structural violence, incarceration, environmental justice, and incorporating my own background as a scholar and activist. One year after the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, calls for racial and economic justice still resound across the country. And so it's my hope that we've amplified those calls um, in the past few episodes. So today I welcome Pastor Isaac Scott. Pastor Isaac Scott is an award-winning social impact multimedia artist and human rights activist. He's a fellow at the Center for Institutional and Social Change at Columbia Law School. And he's the founder and lead artist for the Confined Arts at the Center for Justice at Columbia University, where he spearheads the promotion of justice reform through the transformative power of the arts. His research at Columbia investigates social and institutional methods of dehumanization in the carceral system to decrease punitive triggers in the U.S. criminal justice system. Pastor Scott's passion for equal human rights runs deep and comes as a result of being directly affected by the criminal justice system and its disenfranchising nature. Since returning to society in 2013, he's combined fine arts, graphic design, and film and media to counter the existing negative narratives of people in prison and of those formerly incarcerated and directly impacted. Through the Confined Arts, Pastor Scott has organized art exhibitions, poetry performances, and storytelling projects to really interrogate and bring about awareness around several important issues, such as juvenile justice, solitary confinement, prison conditions, and the rising rate of women in prison and the media's role in shaping public perception. As a result of the impactful work of the Confined Arts, Pastor Scott received the 2018, 2019, and 2020 Change Agent Award from the School of General Studies at Columbia University, where he currently studies visual arts and human rights as a justice and education scholar. Today, Pastor Scott holds the esteemed title of Associate Pastor at God's Touch Healing Ministry located in East Harlem, New York, where he serves on the Manhattan Community Board 11 on the nomination of City Council Bill Perkins. Pastor Isaac understands the healing power of the arts. It holds the power to transform both the artist and the audience. He also believes that art in every form can and does effectively change perceptions and conquer stigma. Through his own lived experience, Pastor Scott personally understands the need for realistic representations of himself, of, of individuals like himself, convicted of a crime in the past. Pastor Scott has dedicated his life to using his creativity in every way possible to continue educating and promoting change. 
Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and many Fridays at 5.30 Korean Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. And you can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere that you get podcasts. And you can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls or with me at underscore the number four, graced the number four, this. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, June 28, 2021, there are 3,926,241 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the John Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States is 604,086. As a way to bring humanities to the number, we've been reading a life story or story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. And I'd like to continue that reading now. This story is from the Marshall Project, who at the start of the pandemic asked for incarcerated people to chronicle their daily life with the coronavirus. And this story is from Christopher Walker, incarcerated at the Stanley Correctional Institution in Wisconsin. In early April, my cellmate was using the phone in the day room when someone heard him cough twice. Since March, we'd been hearing about the coronavirus and the state was under a safer at-home order. Someone reported a cell, cellmate's coughing to an officer, and that's when the fiasco be, began. The officer sent my cellmate to the nurse's office. One nurse said it was nothing, he told me, but she got a second opinion. That nurse came in, took one look at him, and decided he looked sick. So they sent my cellmate to an empty unit to quarantine. As I was coming back from cutting hair in the gym, a CO found me. What is going on, I asked. You're being sent to quarantine, he said. Pack up your things. Together, my cellmate and I have 57 years of stuff that we've accumulated throughout our incarceration. I took our pictures off the wall. I packed my essentials, a fan, TV, radio, and headphones. And my most prized possession is a bottle of prayer oil that costs $4.30 an ounce. I spray it in the air to cut all the smells of prison. It took 22 bags in total. Two other prisoners helped me carry our things to the quarantine unit. When I got to the unit, I asked if I could be in a cell next to my cellmate, but we were locked in together. I guess they figured if he was sick, I had already been exposed, but there was no way to know. At the time, the CDC was only recommending testing if people showed symptoms and I didn't have any. I also thought about all the other guys I had contact with as a barber. I probably cut nine heads a day, so 45 people a week. If I was sick, wouldn't they be sick too? Quarantine was tough. We were stuck in an eight by 12 foot cell with nowhere to sit except for the bunk and no way to social distance or properly disinfect the room. We could only shower every other day. We couldn't go outside and get fresh air or wash our clothes. We had no access to microwaves or the kiosk to send emails. A nurse came by every day to take our vital signs. The worst part was that every 10 weeks, the prison would let us buy a frozen pizza to enjoy on the weekend. As the guard walked me to quarantine, I asked, what about my pizza that I've already paid for? He said he'd find a way to have it cooked and brought to me, but I knew that didn't sound right. Of course, Saturday came and went and I never got any pizza. We should have known how quickly the virus would spread. Just a few months before we had a COVID outbreak, the norovirus spread through the facility. Guys were stuck in their cells, throwing up and using the bathroom at the same time. It was awful. 
COVID-19 was no better. The body aches were terrible. It just felt like I was being crushed or punched all over my body. The lockdown was hard on the guards too. They had to cook the food, clean the showers, wash the laundry, and pass out the mail. These are all jobs that usually the state pays incarcerated people 12 cents an hour to do. Under normal circumstances, the guards just have to make sure they get the count right and hold on to their keys. Now they were working overtime. This month will make 28 years behind bars for me. There has been no worse year than 2020. But I have to tell myself I am not a victim, even if I have felt victimized at certain times. When you have a lot of downtime, the brain wanders. The old coulda, woulda, shoulda syndrome kicks in. The reflection is harder because I'm so close to getting out. I've been front, in front of the parole board three times since 2019. I was supposed to be transferred to a minimum security facility last year, and that's the step before going home. But the pandemic paused all transfers between facilities. Right now, I am filled with a feeling that the door is opening slowly. It's another deep breath moment. I can see why some people don't come out of this alive. Surely, no one comes out of it the same. My guest today, Pastor Isaac Scott. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Pastor Scott, tell us where you are calling from and how's the pandemic situation there and the current vaccination situation. So I am calling first. Thank you. Uh, Felicia, Absolutely. for having me on. Uh, thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you for the, the story. It, it really took me somewhere. I was just zoned out, really just going into, you know, those conditions and uh, just some of the other stories we've heard from people. And it was really sad. And I was just I was stuck there for a second. So you called me. I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, so the, the conditions uh, in New York. Uh, for people who are uh, home and not incarcerated are getting a lot better. You know, we have about 50, I think about more than 60% of New Yorkers have taken their first dose. I think about 50% of New Yorkers are fully vaccinated. Uh, I think that's like 10 million people. So we're, we're uh, it's like 21 million doses given out. So it's been uh it's been better out here. Folks are um so I'm I'm right now calling in from Columbia University. I'm on campus. There was a whole bunch of uh I think you know the city made their precautions and then the university made theirs, which was a lot more intensive, but it you know it makes sense I guess to the establishment, the institution. But we're just uh starting to come back on campus, folks are, uh, you you know, they put a mandate out. So in the fall, if you're not fully vaccinated, you can't come to campus, which mm -hmm. I personally think is a very privileged thing to do. Um, but, I, you know, for, for so many reasons, not everyone is comfortable with getting a vaccine, you know, but they, they do offer opportunities for you to get a waiver. So I won't, I won't say that without mentioning that there is an option for a waiver for those who are not comfortable uh, or who are not able to get vaccinated. Um, but for the most part, um, I'm not going to say things are going back to normal because normal wasn't good, but people are starting to come back outside. You know, folks are not as uh, scared to uh, be in groups uh, to talk with their masks down. Um, so there's some, you know, we're, we're slowly making a transition. One thing about yeah. New York, is we we real cautious and skeptical. <laughs> we take a second before we just take all our masks off and just come back out parking, you know, so. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for that. And of course, even in your just 
kind of basic intro around how things are going. You mentioned something that I want to come back to, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it for right now. Um, but before before we jump into that, I read a, you know, a long bio that's full with a lot of wonderful things that you've been doing. And so I want to jump into your current role. So what's your current role? Tell us a little bit about it and what brings you to this work. Okay, thank you. So I am the founder and executive director of the Confined Arts at Columbia University. So we're currently housed at the Center for Justice at Columbia and at the Center for Institutional Social Change at Columbia. That uh, recent expansion came like earlier last year. Um, pretty much the Confined Arts is a platform for currently and formerly incarcerated artists to advocate for themselves. You know, we use strategic arts engagement to build capacity, change perception, foster relationships, and more importantly, motivate change. You know, we, we understand the, the, the impact that the arts can have in sort of being the way in to uh, being able to change the course or the direction of something, also as being an educational tool. So really centering the arts, I come to this work from uh, my own experience with incarceration, having been in prison for nine years. I learned how to paint and draw when I was incarcerated. And I came home with two sort of, uh, sort of guidelines for myself. One, that I was not going back to jail. And secondly, whatever I did, it was gonna be uh, art related because I had gathered this skill over that time and it was like, well, I can't just leave this in here. It's been so beneficial to me while I've been in here. It's been, it was a means for me to social, uh, psychologically deal with incarceration, but it was also a means for me to financially provide for myself when the state put all sort of extra restitution and encumbrances on my account and prevented me from being able to even buy the, you know, the, the, the most needed of, 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 of resources and things that you need to survive. So, toothpaste, things like that, that you have to pay for. Um, so coming home, I'm like, I'm gonna do something with this art. And I started with these exhibitions, which were a series of exhibitions that featured the work of currently and formerly incarcerated artists. And from there, we were able to uh, get the attention of uh, a lot of different advocates across the city. I also was, while I was doing this, I was working overnight. I had just come home. So I think I was home about a year in three months and uh, I was volunteering, working at Magnolia Bakery in Grand Central undernight during the overnight shift. And uh, in the daytime, literally going to volunteering at different uh, events, advocacy things, and just lending my voice as a person who just came home and trying to really find a better way. I knew that I had to work and I knew that I wasn't going to quit my job at Magnolia until I got something better but I knew that wasn't it, you know? So I was on my grind and I was able to get accepted into uh, the Justice and Education Scholars Program at Columbia, which was in its inaugural year. So it was a pilot actually when I came through and uh, what the Justice and Education Scholars course is, is Columbia offering one free Columbia course per semester to a person who is formerly incarcerated and wants to continue their education post-incarceration. So it's an opportunity for people who are formerly incarcerated to study at Columbia for free, you know, uh, in one course every semester for free. And this can this is a transferable credit, so you can take these credits anywhere. You can also bring credits here if you have them already. So that was a, a huge thing for me. 
I, at the moment, wasn't thinking about going back to school. But I, again, I was like, I'm on my grind, whatever doors are open, Lord, I'm going in. So I went mm -hmm. in um, and uh, I, I, I killed that. And I just never left Columbia. I was like, I'm not going anywhere. It's like once you taste <laughs> a certain thing, it's like now yeah. going back to that. So it was like from there, it was just I just went harder. And being here under the mentorship and the leadership of other formerly incarcerated people, professionals, academics, I was able to uh, grow the Confined Arts into a program which actually uh, now is in a position to build the capacity of students, uh, researchers, advocacy organizations, and uh, just uh, so many different people and really just maximize our opportunity to uh, create change via the arts. And uh, I'll stop there so you can keep going. I don't wanna ramble, but I wanted to mention something that I think is important. Uh, I got the 2021 Change Agent Award as well. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah. That's four-time Change Agent Award. Yeah. First, first uh, black man ever to win this award mm. four times in a row at Columbia. First time this award has been won four times in a row by any person, and I won it in its inaugural year. So I've made history in a way that can't be undone or done by anybody else. So I just wanted to note that as history right now for for what yeah. we do. Yeah, and I really appreciate you saying that and really bringing that to light, too, because um, that also kind of feeds into the, the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is your unique background. So you have this unique background of being directly impacted by mass incarceration. And, you know, that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. But I'm specifically talking about your direct experience with being incarcerated. And now you're working in an academic space, but you're still very much doing grassroots advocacy. You're doing advocacy with folks that are formerly indirect and, and currently incarcerated. And you're a faith leader, right? So we, we have a lot of things on the table. How have you witnessed the impact of COVID-19 on incarcerated people and even more broadly, individuals who are involved in the legal system in the capacity and kind of background that you have? I'm going to try to answer that question by uh, just telling the story of two people who uh, were not able to survive uh, the COVID-19. Uh, last year, when we first got locked down, I think it was in March, so I think April-ish, because it was still cold outside, I went to the, I spoke at the vigil of Mr. Leonard Carter. Mr. Leonard Carter uh, served uh, more than 25 years in prison. He was in Queensboro Correctional Facility, so the 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 vigil was outside of the Queensboro Correctional Facility in Queens, in New York. This is a reentry facility, so excuse me. Everyone who goes there is from one day to 120 days within their release date. So everyone there is going home. That's the purpose of the prison. It's, it's there for reentry. It's mostly for you know, they send people all the way up to, you know, Albany, send them up to Altona, New York, Clinton, all of these places that city folks ain't nowhere near. So they have a jail in the city where they send you down, you do the rest of your time there, and you're released right into the city where you're from, right? Otherwise, you get a bus ticket and you have to travel down, and they don't really want you in the city. So they, they try to get as many people down as possible. I bring this up because uh, the, this gentleman had a uh, life parole. So he... May, he had to, when you have life parole, you have to go before a parole board. And a parole board has to deem you fit to come home, right? So 
this man made it to Queensborough, which means that the, 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 the New York State commissioners decided that this man was fit to be released and could go home. And during his last few weeks at Queensboro Correctional Facility, he died from the virus. Um, the reason for the advocacy outside of the space is because he could have been released sooner. The moment at which they granted his parole, he could have been released, especially in the height of a pandemic where the infection rates are spreading at like seven times faster inside of prisons. You know, I guess I don't. When I say we, I guess uh, people who care about other people would think perhaps you know the best thing to do is to if these folks are going home anyway, don't keep them in this space. Let me also provide a bit more context. Queensboro, if you can imagine a big gym with about just bunk beds, nothing but bunk beds in it nothing but bunk beds. So it's at least a thousand, I want to say a thousand people. It's like more than a hundred people in just like one room. And it's a stacked in floors like that. So social distancing is not even like, that's not even like, that. that's not, <laughs> you know, you laugh at it because it's not even something that's, that can yeah. be made possible. Yeah. And to keep a person in those type of conditions, knowing that one, they're no longer, the, the state has deemed them no longer a threat to society. And, and, and to, to just hold a person on principle, you know, uh, to say, oh, well, this is not your release date yet. So you have to serve every day of this. Although we said 30 days ago, you can go home, you know, and, and, and particularly with people who are released from parole, you can be released anywhere. So they usually let you go 30 days after you make your board, but they can release you two weeks after you make your board. So this is a decision, you know, so it's really like, how arbitrary, you know, the system is with uh, really caring for individuals. And this is the case with everyone who's at um, Queensborough. Everyone there is, is soon to be released and could be released so that the spread wouldn't continue in an environment like that. But the state has its mandates and they, and they won't do it. That's one story. Another story is uh, Cassandra Greer-Lee. She is the woman of, a, of a Nicholas, her husband, Nicholas, uh, was incarcerated at Cook County uh, Jail in Chicago. And I don't know if you know that Cook County, uh, I think it was in, in a, a few months ago, reported like the worst conditions in, in COVID. So Cook County is, is the worst, right? So we uh, did some advocacy on a project out there working with the Chicago Bail Fund. Um, so Cassandra's story is that she did everything she could uh, you 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 mentioned the uh, story about a gentleman being on the phone, them using the phone and he hearing someone cough and and then the phone being used and, and this whole am I spreading the virus? This was exactly the situation with this gentleman in that he uh, used the the same facilities as everyone else. He got sick, he was getting worse and worse, and his wife literally called. So the name of the project is One Three Two Calls because she called the jail 132 times. Right. And it still wasn't enough to save her husband. Right. And since his death, the number of people in jail um, has increased to nearly pre pandemic numbers. And, 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 and COVID hasn't let up in Cook County and they're not letting up on the incarcerating of people to be housed in Cook County. So this is like what we're dealing with. You know, this is what we're dealing with. Um, and uh, 
I know the next, the, a lot of the next few questions will allow us to go a bit deeper, but this is the scope. We have, yeah. uh, we have conditions where a person, even when they are released, cannot go until, you know, these arbitrary policies, rules and regulations are sort of overhauled in order for a person to be uh, sort of saved or released to a place where they could actually distance themselves and, and, and prevent the spreading of the virus, right? But then we also have family members who are advocating for their loved ones who can't get inside. You see, the, the prison walls are made high for a reason. They're not just made high to keep people in, but it's to keep people outside from coming in and being able to see what's going on inside. So those mm-hmm. who are outside can't come in and those who are inside can't come out. And it's it's a, it's very horrible when, you know, you have to hear your family member dying on the phone, hear them and you can't do anything about it. You know, not even be able to see them because, you know, they dead it all visits everywhere. So you can't see them and, and to hear them, you know, calls were restricted. You know, they, they, they were only given you know, even less time to lock out, to use the phone, and then to get on the phone and be coughing, talking to your spouse, the person who who knows you, loves you, has shared the bed with you, has has sh- sharing family with you, you know, to hear them dying on the phone and you calling the facility and they're acting as if it's not important. It's not that serious. So this is the scope, Felicia, mm-hmm. of what, what we're dealing with, you know? Yeah. And I really appreciate you laying the foundation and and kind of giving those two vignettes, right? Because so you're talking about the scope of of the pandemic for incarcerated people. And so you're starting to either pepper it with the significance. So you're talking about the inability to social distance. You're talking about the inability for folks to to, you know, have that kind of space, even in the midst of the pandemic. You're Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, shared um, resources or facility space, right? So you're talking about the the double bunking or the the bed bed the bunk beds. You're talking about using the same phones and being in the, you know being in the same space. And you're also talking about this kind of inability to advocate on their behalf and for family members to advocate on their behalf as well. So all of that kind of considered, what's the significance, right? Even more so what you've already talked about, what's the significance of COVID-19 for incarcerated people? Like ultimately, why does that matter? Why does the inability of social distance, the inability for us to see what's going on inside, the inability for family members to advocate, why does that matter to, you know, folks who are not passionate about this for folks who are not following this? Yeah, I think one thing, that's a great question. I think one of the things that folks, you know, I, th- I thank God for the prison experience, although I would never want to do it again. I thank God for it because it was, it was information, it was knowledge, it was insight. One of the things that people have to understand is that prison conditions were horrible prior to COVID-19. People were living in very horrid, uh, you know, situations, uh, you know, still under the same conditions, you know, not getting the medical attention they needed, not, uh, you know, not getting the, 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 the medication, not getting the attention, not getting the therapy, not getting the, uh, when I say attention, I don't just mean medical attention. I also mean social attention and not social. Like I need a friend social, but like I need a counselor social. I'm about to kill myself. Like not social. So the conditions for, uh, condition for prison were already worse and, and COVID just exacerbated all of that. And it just made everything worse. And one of the worst things about that, that we should understand is that no one inside of 
it's, this is particularly important for prisons, for people to know about prisons. Folks were incarcerated prior to COVID-19. No one incarcerated brought the, the virus inside of prison. This virus was brought in by staff, people working there. When we checked the numbers, you know, in New York, we saw that uh, the, the uh, DOC was infected at a, such a high rate. And it's like, they're coming in and out the prison. The folks who are, who are in, incarcerated are not going anywhere and they're not moving. So they're, they're really just like sitting ducks. You know, so you're already in a situation where the conditions are horrible and now it's like uh, they're going to get a lot worse and there's really nothing you can do because, again, you're state property. You don't have any rights. You're lucky that, you know, we do as much as we do to keep you breathing, you know, and it's really that sort of attitude. You know, a, a lot of folks advocate for incarceration but don't understand the severity of what it means to be incarcerated. They don't understand what it's like for a person on a day-to-day uh, life. They don't understand what it's like for a family day to day. They don't understand what the long term effects on children are. They don't understand a lot of these things. And I think that what, why this matters is because it made a bad situation already worse, you know, and it made it worse for a group of people who don't have enough people advocating for them. You know, the only people who really advocate for people who are incarcerated are those who are formerly incarcerated and those who have loved ones who have been incarcerated because they, they, they know the impact, you know? And, and it's, 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 it's very sad, it's very unfortunate, uh, but it matters because we're talking about people, you know? And I, and I don't understand God-fearing people who don't care about people, you know? So it's, yeah. it's, that's why it's important. You know? Yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad that you, you mentioned this because earlier that's the kind of point that I wanted to return to, right? Because you said normal wasn't good. And I think for a lot of people, um, this, in some ways, obsession to return to normal, understandably so, right? You, you, COVID comes, it disrupts our entire kind of social way of being, right? It disrupts mm-hmm. everything. And for many of us, especially folks who are dealing with loss, um, kind of want to go back to normal so that the, the grand kind of feeling and impact of, of COVID is not the same. But then for the folks who have experienced loss, we know that, you know, going back to normal is not possible because some people won't be there when we kind of go back to normal. But you're bringing up this idea that normal wasn't good for everyone, right? So normal wasn't actually something that people wanted to be in in the first place to even return back to it. And now when you're talking about the significance of the pandemic for incarcerated people and why it should matter to us, you're also bringing up this idea that you're not, we're not just saying it's COVID, Right. You're pointing to conditions. You're pointing to incarceration on the whole before COVID ever came and why that is significant or why that matters. So kind of relating to that, you talked about, you know, you know, all of these different uh, conditions and folks not really understanding the long term impacts of incarceration on individuals who are actually incarcerated on their families, on society, that kind of thing. From a structural standpoint, how does systemic violence, kind of structural violence, factor into what we're seeing? Because it's not just kind of on the ground, one-to-one relationships. We're talking about something that's at a structural level. How does that factor into what we're seeing play out with the pandemic? Yeah, I, you know, structural violence is violent because it's structural. You know, it's, it's violent because it doesn't consider individuality. It doesn't consider uniqueness. It doesn't consider 
things to be outside of the sort of uh, industry standard. And, and, and whenever we engage anything, particularly people with an industry standard is violent because we're, we're totally um, ignoring um, their uniqueness, right? And their, their own, you know, autonomy and their own uh, capacity to be whatever it is they will be. Um, but to, to answer your question, uh, people are being held um, in, incarcerated because of the fear of public safety. And I think that that's something that we really have to look at because prisons don't make people safer. Prisons don't make our community safer. So this whole idea of, of, of setting up these systems and uh, this, these, uh, having this sort of system of incarceration is to, to sort of keep us safe is very like, it seems like it's productive if you never look past the fact that the person who committed a, an offense is no longer around. If you, if that's the, if that's the, the, the sort of the satis if that's where we we sort of are basing our satisfaction at, then everyone would be satisfied. But if the goal is to uh, create a place where folks are uh, are being uh, handled correctly, restored, and, and given the opportunities and the resources that we're talking about is necessary, then this system of incarceration just becomes a violent, uh, a form of structural violence, and this. It works, you know, and it works in that it's present, it's here. Um, we don't have to uh, do much, lock them up. The system is there to do what it does. It's a structured system put in place. Um, but it's very violent because we see that people need individual attention. Things need individual attention. You know, situations need individual attention. Ten people can commit the same offense, but it doesn't mean that they're all dealing with the same issues, you know, and, and this is what, this is how we see structural violence playing out in that it, it, it creates this oneness of dealing with everything. It's like we deal with everything with this one solution. We got a nail, everything's a nail, all the problems we see are nails and we got this hammer and that's it, <laughs> you know, and I hope that I'm doing a good job of answering this question because it's really like, it's so there but it's just, it's, it hurts because it's really like, we advocate against it, but don't see how we perpetuate it so much with agreeing to keep doing the same thing. So to the yeah. point about the normal, as long as everyone is okay with the status quo and the normal, we will continue to perpetuate the systemic violence. And I think it's a, it's a thing, and it's very sad that we have to experience it ourselves or see it ourselves in order to believe it, in order to empathize with it. It's not, I can't hear my brother or my sister tell me that that hurt them in order for me to believe it hurt them enough for it to stop. I have to go through it myself or I got to see it myself in order for, you know, that's the type of uh, sort of nation we have, right? Uh, we've been telling folks about systemic uh, black uh, issues that black people go through, but you got to see somebody get, they need put on for, you know, and get killed. And this, you know, that's just, it's like, this is how we see uh, a, a systemic violence play out and that it ignores, you know, it ignores until it becomes, until it disrupts the system that is in place, right? Because white people couldn't keep being okay with that, right? And then try to stand by us in solidarity, right? 
So it just, it's it's a lot, Felicia. That's yeah. one of the really questions that's going to get me in trouble. <laughs> well, listen, we're, we're all putting the perspectives on the line. You know, folks may agree or disagree, but I think it's really important for folks to understand kind of the the variety of perspectives and experiences. And I think that you're you're hitting the nail on the head in a lot of different ways. And I want to kind of go into some of what you what you just mentioned, but I want to plug. that you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korean Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. And you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded on podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeans, or anywhere that you can get podcasts. And you can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls or with me at underscore the number for this and so please help us spread the word, send suggestions for guests and future topics. And so kind of going back into what you were talking about with structural violence, I think it's really, really important to kind of pull out a couple of points. And one of those points is this idea of not like the the, the simultaneous uh Kind of use and wide, like widespread use of incarceration and and calls for incarceration, but simultaneously not really understanding ways that incarceration has these long term effects, but also doesn't necessarily accomplish a lot of the goals that it says that it's supposed to accomplish, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into like super great depth, but I think you bringing up these ideas around public safety, like what does that mean, is important for people to consider because when we say we put someone away and put them behind bars for committing a crime we also have to understand what does that person mean in their ecosystem in their social in their social system and what kinds of breakdowns might happen as a result of them being away right and this is not a you know let's get into but they did the crime well that's not that argument right now we're we're literally thinking about ways that incarceration disrupts social networks it disrupts families it disrupts communities which ultimately then lead to breakdowns in quote unquote public safety that incarceration was supposed to um, you know bring forward and so what you're also hitting on is is some of the reasons why calls for defunding the police or abolishing policing has also come up because people have argued that these things are related so how do, how does that how does that come up for you? Like, what do you see as that relation between mass incarceration, between these calls for defunding the police, abolishing, you know, abolition? Like, how do all of those things make sense for you? Yeah. Well, we know that we know that uh, we know the direct link between uh, law enforcement and incarceration is in that, you know, you are arrested by law enforcement. They are the ones who bring you to you know, to 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 the judge. They are the ones who arrest you. That initial arrest, uh, all of that is um, at the discretion of police and detectives and and those working in, uh, as law enforcement professionals to ensure that there is an arrest made. You know, whether it's legitimate or illegitimate. You know, and ensuring that that person is brought before the courts and then it's handed over to the district attorney, who will then decide on what the prosecution should be for that person. But I think the fullness of this. And um, 
I, I think one of the things, so I've written about this and one of the, I've written a, a lot about this. Columbia, I don't know why they let me write in the newspaper here. They must have not, <laughs> they were playing right. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I, I've written about, bef- the two things, one, the punishment paradigm. I'm going to come right back to that. The first thing is that uh, calls for abolition seem to be very hip- hypocritical to me. And I feel like that because uh, on one hand, we say that free the people. And then on other hands, we say uh, lock them up and throw away the key. So it's, it's free the people until it's Derek Chauvin. And it's like, nah, don't free that person. You understand what I'm saying? So it becomes it, it becomes hypocritical right there at that point. And it's very, it's, and, and I'm not saying I have the answer in any way because I'm torn myself as an abolitionist, right? I want to see accountability, right? Um, I want to see this man uh, be held accountable for what he did. I think it was disgusting. It was very immoral and it was, it was it was it was a lot of words, right? But I also know that um, incarceration is not going to uh, solve the issue. I know that him doing that all that time is not going to change what led to him doing that, right? So right then and there, um, it's like there's an issue. Where do we? What do we do? See, we going to the second point, the punishment paradigm. The only way we know how to deal with things is through incarceration. This nation is so reliant on incarceration. We lock up people for everything. We call the police for everything from a a, a cat in a tree to a noise complaint to a honking horn to, you know, so the police, you know, to their, to their defense, they got a lot that they got to deal with that shouldn't be on their place, I believe. Uh, but look how reliant we are on law enforcement, right? And we and 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 the degree of money and privilege you hold means more that you feel protected and that you should be. Uh, so you feel more entitled to uh, the 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 services that the, the 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 NYPD or any other police department is supposed to provide for you. So I think uh, first, just dealing with this punishment paradigm, we have to find different ways to deal with crime. We have to, one, get a lot more preventative so that things don't happen, but those things that do happen and have already happened, how do we uh, deal with this in a way where we're not perpetuating punishment? The Bible says violence begets violence. What do we expect if we're going to, if you oppress a person and through a system, right, if you use uh, systematic oppression to keep a person down, to do the same sort of things they feel like they're being weighed down on out here, how is it different for them in there? You know, so it's not, we're not producing better people. And, and you know, they see folks like myself and other people come home and like, oh, well, you did it a lot. Not that many people come home and are able to be successful. If, if we're not checking recidivism rates and really looking at the level of success for people, post-incarceration opportunities, collateral consequences that come with this, we're not setting people up to be uh, productive members of society. But that also goes into the fact that we are a throwaway nation, right? We throw people away. It's okay. We got, I guess we got enough good people to throw away all the bad people, right? So it's just that you got to look at how we deal with people, right? We have this punishment. It's like, you if you if you break the law, you have to be punished for breaking the law. You know what I mean? So you have to be and 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 there's no distinction between accountability and punishment. So to many, accountability means punishment. And it's like it's it's to me, I don't want to sound in any way uh proud, but it seems petty. 
It's like we can't get to a place where we won't use violence to handle our problems. It's very much like a colonial attitude. I'm gonna just force and bully my way to get what I want, right? And it's not like we care about people. You know, we care about um, individuals enough to say, you know what, we know that this person did this, but we can see that if we give them this type of support, then they'll be better, you know? And it's, it's there's no real investment in humanity. So I think that the, the connection here um, with law enforcement, um, defunding the police, mass incarceration, all of these things play into a punishment paradigm that we want to see ended. So when we say defund the police, we don't say it's not that we don't want our streets safe. People are so like petty with their arguments sometimes. Of course, we want the streets safe, but we don't want there to be a hyper militarization of the police. Y'all don't need extra guns when you can put extra resources in a community center that'll keep those same young men in the inside instead of being outside. You know, it's like real, like regular stuff that I guess mm -hmm. we feel regular because we've been asking for it forever. But I guess the way systems are set up, it's not like, well, that, that's not going to work this way. And it's really like uh, ending this punishment paradigm, right? And stop being so reliant on law enforcement to do the work that we as community members can do. And I think that's the connection I, I, I want to make here because it ain't just about getting the police defunded. That ain't just, you know, because I think that there's something there to saying that it's, it's and I think it's it's a very, it's I think it's very privileged and unfair to say that we should just defund the police just like that without having put resources in place. What about that 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 woman who's who's dealing with domestic violence and the only people who are going to come and save her from her abuser are the police. We don't have uh community spaces and community organizations and mediators set up to go and get her and her family out of there to come and go so you know what I mean? So even the police don't have that much but they have enough to come in and at least get them out. So I mean we can't just say, oh, get rid of the police until we have really ensured community members and people who have relied on them for perceived safety, I'm going to say, because, you know, folks don't know a lot of times people really think the police keep them safe. If, if you don't give people other, uh, more of an understanding or better understanding and different options, then you can't, ex you can't do that. You know, and, and to ask people, hey, well, how do you feel about defunding the police without actually explaining to them what that means? It's unfair. You know, so it's all of these tricks and stuff. But I think it comes down to this punishment paradigm and continuing to uh, capitalize, um, dare I say, capitalize off of black and brown bodies. Right. To be able to continue this this prison industrial complex and, and to, to, to continue to make money uh, off of people uh, who are state property. Like, look at the language we use, state property. You know, this is this is the this is uh, this is where we at, Felicia. Yeah. like my connections there. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you you are really kind of pushing right against some of these more popular um notions and understandings of a lot of things that we might say very flippantly, but don't really understand what we mean, right? So when folks are saying defund the police, and this is again, you know, for folks that are listening, this is not necessarily an endorsement of anything, but really just an understand uh, understanding for us to kind of work with what do these things mean when we use them? So what does defunding the police mean? What does abolition mean? What do these things mean, right? And I think what you're bringing up is let's not 
debate and fight against the little small definitions of these things, but let's look at the bigger picture. What does it mean to meet people's needs? What does it mean for people to be housed and fed and have resources and have employment and be able to take care of themselves? What does that mean? Right. And I think that that's where that's where the conversation really lies. And I think, you know, especially for what you were talking about in terms of this punishment paradigm, we can immediately see how that then impacts folks in the time of COVID. Because if we're talking about just locking them up and throwing them away, then we see why some of the precautions weren't taken care of inside because these are the throwaway people, right? So I think you're really you're really bringing out a lot of the, the kind of foundations of what we understand to be the, the criminal justice system in the United States, but also some of the more structural foundations of what we think of and see for folks that we consider marginalized that we consider kind of thrown away. So I know, you know, we're coming down on time and I want to jump around a little bit because I I really want to touch on um, Mm -hmm. your role as a faith leader, right? So I want to kind of jump into some of that. So you are the associate pastor and I I want to, of of God's Healing Touch Ministry, and I want to kind of talk about your your process, your, 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 experience there. How have you supported your congregation? So kind of moving out of necessarily incarceration, but as a faith leader, how have you supported your congregation during COVID-19? And what has been some of the greatest challenges of that? And how have you navigated that? Um, That's a great question. Um, One of the, um, so three ways that I've been able to really um, identify ways that I believe that I've been able to support my congregation and just uh, people in general is one being going online and, and, and giving messages, trying to give encouraging words. I've been doing Insight Sundays, which are very short videos for Sundays. And then I do uh, weekly life lessons. And that's really just uh, doing Bible study, but putting it in a in a day-to-day context, in the real context. You know, not, you know, I, I am, uh, I am, I am, uh, I I don't undo tradition, but I'm not a traditionalist, if you will. You know, so I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I do understand that, you know, there's a lot more to what we're being taught in the Bible and what we're being taught in churches and what we're being taught by um, elder faith leaders. And I try to take us a bit deeper and try to try to give us a bit more understanding. Also just helping people to, to, to take these opportunities to strengthen their relationship with God. I think those are, uh, that's been one big thing. Uh, providing information to referral services and advocacy programs has been a thing as well, because it's not just, hey, pray about it. <laughs> and you mm-hmm. don't do nothing, right? So it's also like, well, here's how you can go get what you need. Here's how you can go about it. Here's how you should sort of uh, uh, strategize your steps. Don't just go in there doing it this way, go and do it this way so you can maximize your opportunity. You know, we, as black people, we always got to move strategically because it's always something up against us to keep us from getting the resources we need. So just being able to help folks navigate these tough spaces, uh, that's that's the second thing. Um, but also a lot of one-on-one mentoring. This has been a real hard time for a lot of people and really just uh, folks are blaming themselves a lot for a lot of things. Folks are having to spend more time in uh, in the home. You know, folks are going through different uh, sort of uh, exposures to different behaviors in the household, different levels of stress and grief from love, losing your job and then your loved one back. It's so much, right? And just being able to give people a word to help them make it through today. 
and to see why they should keep going. So as much as possible, I just try to be available, you know, and that's a, that's not an easy thing, right? And it does take a lot of emotional sort of energy, but uh, I think that one of the things I've tried to do is be available and give all of the resources that I have to really uh, just support folks. Yeah. And and I want to talk about two things related to that. So, you know, you just talked about and that's going to be kind of related to what I'm going to ask you. But you just talked about kind of the emotional energy, right, that it takes to support your your congregation in these one on ones. And I think that might not be something that we kind of think of in the entire COVID-19 pandemic. We don't think about the impact on for faith leaders or even for therapists, so to speak. So folks that are kind of in this one on one direct relationship. So you talked about it having or taking a lot of emotional energy, how have you dealt with that? Like, how do you support yourself in supporting other folks? Man, I, I'm, Felicia, I'm, I'm doing it one day at a time. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm blessed to have uh, supportive people around me who call me out and check me um, when they see that and they feel like I may not be uh, taking care of myself or I may be doing things that are not healthy, trying to do too much, or maybe I'm not doing enough in a particular area. I, I, I um, Just keeping good people around me and uh, being and listening to them. Um, that's how I've been able to manage. I've gone through a lot over this pandemic. Um, I won't go into a lot of it here, but um, relationship stuff, um, family getting sick, um, so it's been a lot for me as well, but I've been really just trying to keep my faith. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because in one token, the Lord will allow this to happen, but also bless you in the process. So it's like a bittersweet thing and you don't know how to, you know, it's like, yeah, this I'm prospering in this way, but I'm seeing so many people uh, hurting in this way. And, I, and I, I'm for the people and I'm with the people. So your pain is my pain. And it's like, I can't really enjoy my happiness if you're not happy. So it's really like a tough space to navigate emotionally. And then I think with all the racial tensions uh, with COVID doesn't help. <laughs> that doesn't help, you know, yeah. uh, especially when you continue seeing stuff, it yeah. doesn't help, you know? Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Right. Because I was going to that was going to be the second part. So because earlier you mentioned, you know, you can't understand kind of how God's people are not concerned with with COVID-19 and incarceration and understanding kind of these impacts for incarcerated folks. How does that make it harder? Like, how do you see that kind of relationship between your faith, between what you're seeing with COVID-19, incarceration, racial justice, which is, I know, a big question, but. For you, how does that make it worse or what do you see as the kind of relationships with all of that? You know, I was very fortunate enough to take a class at the beginning of last year, African-American studies with Professor Joseph Surratt, and we got to dig a lot into uh, black liberation, mm -hmm. uh, all of churches and this movement. And I have to say that that was a very timely class because it helped me to really figure out how I can be effective and not just frustrated. You know, because I'm very angry. I'm still very angry. I'm still very frustrated. I'm, you know, Bible says be angry and sin not. So that's where I'm at. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take any of that energy and, and, and put it anywhere it doesn't need to be. Um, but it, it will go towards uh, good. Um, I think that uh, some of the, uh, some of the stuff I, I think that has helped is, is, is noticing how what good has come out of all of this as well, right? And I'm gonna take this opportunity to answer one of your questions here. And that I think all of these events, it it did one and it, it, it woke up the consciousness of this nation, 
right in so many ways. We have a, a, this conscious, the consciousness of this nation is white <laughs> completely. Um, and it's like if white people ain't uh, paying it no attention, then they don't get no airplay, right? And the moment white people pick it up, it's a, it's a thing, right? Uh, but now our consciousness has been awakened, right? Um, I think uh, Darnella Frazier, the, the young lady who uh, video recorded the George Floyd murder, I think that she showed us that we should continue to use the resources we have right at our disposal to bring awareness to injustice. You know, so I'm very happy for that. You're just highlighting the role of media, right? Uh, same thing with Emmett Till and that image, right? That his mother allowed to be released. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I think those things help when we can kind of see some some good coming out of it. You know, I do have a note on uh, sort of equity inclusion, you know, you know, some things that still need to change. I think as we think about equity and inclusion, it's not just adding more black bodies, black and brown bodies. It's, that is so like, uh, 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 what's the word, patronizing, you know, to do that. Oh, I got this many black and brown people. But equity and inclusion is transferring power transferring resources right transforming tra transferring decision making sometimes yeah. you got all of the black people in the world but it's still a white person making all the decisions right and so so there's a this 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 that's not equity and that's not inclusion right um so i think when we you know all of those things and just those those things and having a sort of a focus to be able to educate people in areas where i can bring more awareness i think those things help me even during these times to deal with all of this stuff and make sense of it because it's not easy and it does take a lot of energy. But I think uh, being able to kind of see where we're at, the good that's come out of it and where we need to go has been helpful. Yeah. And I, and, you know, I think that's so beautiful. And I really appreciate you because, um, you know, like I mentioned, you have such a, a diverse background and I, this has been a really rich discussion because you've been able to give us um, so many different insights from so many different places. And it's not just like each experience, but you've really brought those experiences together and, and have allowed us really to understand what does it mean to be directly impacted, to still be doing work in, 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 you know, in the art area, in the social justice area with folks who have had similar experiences to you? What does it mean for you to be living the same life in terms of what incarceration, um, you know, those long-term impacts, you're walking in that and you're also supporting other people with that. And then you're having this experience, you know, as a faith leader supporting other people in the time of a pandemic and seeing, you know, the racial justice calls, seeing COVID-19, both for incarcerated people and for um, folks on the outside. And so anyway, I'm, I'm saying all of that to say, because I think one of the things that I really want folks to walk away with is just this, you know, understanding. And I think that this has been really the theme in all of the conversations I've had in all of my guest hosting, how interconnected everything is. And I think that so many times we, we you know, chop things up and we compartmentalize and we think, oh, this is the thing right here. And it has nothing to do with this thing over here. But even in your kind of discussion around, you know, defunding the police, you're, you're showing like, it's not just about stopping incarceration, reducing how many people we lock up, or it's not just, you know, take away all the jobs for police. It's really about how do we support people? How do we meet people's needs? How do we provide alternatives to things if we don't agree with the alternative that exists, how do we, or the, the option that exists, how do we provide some of those alternatives? So I, I really appreciate all of your insight, really. I think that this was tremendously valuable. My last question for you is, 
What is your hope for this year as we hopefully move closer to the end of the pandemic? But, you know, what's your hope? What's your vision? What are you um, kind of hoping for, praying for, believing for as we as we move closer to what's hopefully the end? Uh, honestly, I'm praying for more awareness from uh, white people. Honestly, I'm praying for more awareness for people who ascribe to whiteness. Um, and I'm not saying that as in any anti-white way, but I think that when we, if we, we talk about white supremacy and we throw these terms around, but we don't understand what white supremacy looks like. We don't understand mm -hmm. that, you know, in a lot of ways, white leader, the perpetuation of white leadership is, is still white supremacy. And it's so, it's so much that's still lost on white people. You know, like they understand a little bit, but the extent to which there's an injustice, um, I, I don't think they get it all the way. I think also one of the biggest things I would pray for is that Black lives matter as much as white lives matter and as much as Asian lives matter. You know, it's very, I'm gonna be very honest and say this here, that it kind of hurt in some ways to watch them in New York start passing laws and stuff to protect Asian people from uh, hate crimes. And I'm like, well, we get terrorized by the police all the time and there are no precautions set up to prevent those things. And it goes unheard. It goes unnoticed and it goes ignored. It doesn't go unheard and unnoticed. It goes ignored. It goes, OK, we saw it. OK, moving right along. Right. And, you know, George Floyd wasn't the first one to be caught on. You know, this is not the first time we saw an African-American murdered on camera or beat on camera or stuff like that. Mm. So it's very it's very uh I, I feel like there's still a force that is keep that is trying to keep black people in an in a in an unliked place so that we are always the enemy of this country and everyone will be lifted up in our stead and as everyone else is lifted up we will continue to be that uh group of people who are sort of looked at as bad and negative and, you know, so I'm just praying for change in that way, praying for the Lord to just uh, uh, show show his 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 hand and show his will, because we know who we are, you know, and, and that's and we know who we are. And we, we have to share that, I guess, secret to, with each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to yeah. appreciate it within our groups. And this, and this is where you see where we create these black spaces because we don't get no love outside of our own spaces. You know, and it's very unfortunate. So I pray that, you know, black lives would begin to matter as much as other lives matter. See, folks think that it's like, oh, black lives are the only lives that matter. No, you don't understand that black lives don't matter right now. <laughs> they don't understand that. Like your, your life matters. If something happens to you, it's going to be a thing. But my life doesn't matter. You know, yeah. so it's, 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 it hurts, you know, it yeah. does. especially when you uh, it hurts, especially when you. Uh, you, you know, as a black man, I'm a, I'm a person who came home from prison, understand what that oppression looks like and racism looks like. Because if you want to see slavery, go to any jail. You can see what it looks like. They don't treat people any different. To come home, to be in a place, I provide a lot of white people opportunities right here with me, right? I see a lot of privilege walk through in front of me, sit in front of me, work with me, entitled, get blessed, keep moving and it's still a consciousness of just like uh 
of nonchalant and it's not, yep. you know, still, you just still see it, right? It's still that air of privilege that just operates, that's just carefree, doesn't have a care in the world, doesn't matter, doesn't, you know, and it's, it's it, 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 you know, I just pray that, you know, uh, the consciousness of this nation would continue to wake up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I, you know? Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate your honesty, because I think that it is really important for us to recognize that um, when we say things like Black Lives Matter, when we when we talk about racial justice or we talk about, um, you know, the constant trauma of seeing black death. I think it's very important for us to put like actual experiences on that, right? So it does mean that there are people like you, like me, who sit then at home and feel the weight of that, right? That are not, it doesn't mean that there's any hatred or anything like that, but it does mean that there is that weight of seeing um, what that does and and constantly kind of being um, inundated with those images. So I appreciate your honesty. And I think that it is important for folks to to hear that, to feel that and to, to sit with that. So thank you so much. And I'm just going to um, put a plug here. And then I want you to just tell folks how they can find you, how they can get in contact with you and join your work or visit your ministry. And so just a reminder, everyone, you can catch COVID calls here live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, many Fridays, 5 30 p.m. Korean time on YouTube. And so just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, anywhere that you get podcasts. And you can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US Disaster or at COVID Calls or keep up with me at underscore the number four, Grace for this. And Pastor Isaac Scott, how can they get in contact with you? How can they uh, join any of the work that you're doing? Um, so you can find the work of The Confined Arts at theconfinedarts.org, and you can contact us through the website if you want. You can uh, find me on Instagram at Pastor Isaac Scott. Um, I also have a, a independent film company that I started recently to provide uh, film and media services to uh, socially engaged people, folks who are trying to do this social justice work, change agents, people who don't have the, the thousands of dollars to make media and make films. So we're offering affordable uh, media services, at, uh, quarterly films. So I, I feel like you could just find me. If you just Google me, Pastor Isaac Scott, you'd find me. Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Follow me, please. I need more following. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, but I just, I yeah, will definitely tag you in this as well. When we post it. So I just want, yeah. I just, the only thing I was just saying is that just, let's just love each other and really identify what love is and, and do that. And I think that that's how we're going to get to the place we need to go. Yes. And that is a great way to end. It's all about love. Thank you so much, Pastor Isaac Scott, for joining us today. Thank you for such valuable wisdom, insight, discussion, honesty. Like, I really do appreciate it. And I think that this has been a really, really tremendous conversation that folks should be able to just lock into and really understand and, and walk through. So thank you again for your time today. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Take care.